Welcome to this podcast. I trust you have kept your coming here a secret. The following presentation is intended only for immature audiences. It shouldn't really be allowed. And God said, let there be F-bombs, and they were good, and they multiplied, right here in this podcast. Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It's been more than one month since my last episode. That's not good. Well, um, I think it's it's good, but there could be more, you know, that it could run more often. Ooh, alrighty there, fairy tale lovers. Welcome back to the Hansel and Gretel Code. Oh, you back again? Uh, yep. This here is episode 19. You are going to be here for a while, so you better get comfortable. In our last episode... We made a good argument for seeing Frau Holzhacker as a literary metaphor for the strict, dogmatic voice of conscience. Now, conscience is supposed to be the voice of God. And sure, sometimes it even coincides with the still, small voice of the heart. But uh, you know as well as I do that conscience often overrules or drowns out that still, small voice. And uh, just like Michael Corleone, it not only demands our absolute allegiance, we all know about the guilt trip conscience is only too happy to take us on. Hey, pull up, will you? I gotta take a leak. And all too often, that means sacrificing the very things we should be holding most dear. Leave the gun. Take the cannoli. Okay, well, most of the time. Uh, Ah. (laughs) Now, speaking of sacrifice, we've also seen how the Holzhacker kids are scapegoats for the lack of food on the Holzhacker table. Not to mention the otherwise inexplicable scarcity of grace in the Holzhacker household, if not all of Germany. Now, all of this led us to the conclusion that Frau Holzhacker was in the throes of an animus possession. What are you talking about? Oh, sorry, I, I explained all that in episode 18, when some of us snuck into a carnival to see the bearded lady. I guess uh, you didn't come along. No. Well, it just means that the witch, as a bearded lady, had taken possession of Frau Holzhacker and was forcing her to feed her two children to the dark, 
unconscious complex, otherwise known in Jungian circles, as anonymous possession. What a load of crap. Hey, if all of that sounds like the kind of Jungian psychobabble you have no interest in swallowing, today we got something else, something more entertaining on the menu. The Grimms themselves are taking us out for a nice meal at an ancient dinner theater. Their treat. Hooray! So let's listen to that invitation as it comes in the form of their personal revision to this part of the story. No, wife, said the man, I will not do that. How can I bear to leave my children alone in the forest? The wild animals would soon come and tear them to pieces. Oh, you fool, said she, then we must all four die of hunger. You may as well plane the planks for our coffins. And she left him no peace until he consented. But I feel very sorry for the poor children all the same, said the man. Not good. Part 1 Teil 1 In which we find out that there are a hell of a lot of cannibals among us. And not all of them are zombies. New word from the nation's top scientists on the zombie virus that appeared two weeks ago. Uh, it's okay. Reading between the lines of their revision, it seems obvious that the Grimms understood how this business of scapegoating was already lurking in between the lines of the story. I'm sorry, what? See, they deliberately added the one little detail that not only confirms our own intuition about scapegoating, but provides a cheeky little clue as to how some of us can identify the still, small voice. Surprisingly, this was not a late addition. They actually put it in their own first version of the story. That is, their 1812 first edition. And that makes it an odd little detail of genuine philologic significance. Because it's just possible they didn't make up this crucial alteration themselves. Really? Now, of course, the bare-bones version of the story we're using comes from their 1810 manuscript. But between 1810 and 1812, when they published their first edition, it's actually possible they heard some other, more elaborate version of the tale that included this extra detail. Maybe. Now, I have good reason for saying this because of a very particular fact I uncovered in my research. But it's uh, just too soon to spill the beans on this. We need to talk about this right now. Hey, it's not because I want to keep you in suspense. It's because we all need plenty more context for the facts in question to make any kind of significant sense. So uh, don't worry, we'll get there. As long as I can get enough support to speed up this process. Speaking of which, if you'd like to show your support for the podcast, I've uh, signed up for one of those donation pages. Coffee.com. K-O-F-I. I can't believe you did that. So, if you'd like to buy me a beer, or a cup of coffee, 
Or even a cup of coffee, if that's your thing. Don't go there. I'll leave a link in the notes and in the transcripts. Whatever. And just in case you don't already know, you can find complete transcripts, including all the voice and music credits, as well as all sorts of interesting links regarding the history we're uncovering in between the lines of the fairy tale. And that's true for each episode. It's all on the website. Visit us on the web at www.betweenthelines.xyz. I don't think so. Alrighty. So, the important detail I'm talking about in the Grimm's edition to the story, it's... The wild animals would soon come and tear them to pieces. The connotations attached to this detail are so important to the zeitgeist of our author. They're likely to have been original to the story. Who cares? Well, let's take a closer look at those connotations, and then you can decide for yourself if they mean anything. Being torn to pieces and eaten by wild animals? It's pretty obviously the fate of a literal scapegoat from Leviticus. It's just that there's more to this visceral little detail than just one scriptural reference. In a prophetic and metaphoric way, Herr Holzacker is actually speaking about the witch. His words imply that she is the same as a wild animal. And we, who already know the story, know that she certainly has the same intent as a wild animal. This makes her a force of nature. As a dark, murderous character of the unconscious, she shares some of the frightening aspects of Kali, the Hindu goddess of destruction. And that makes her an archetypal force to be reckoned with. Flee or die. Uh Uh-oh. We'll also see later on that in terms of characterizing and identifying the witch, our author had some other, some very specific historical characters in mind. Who's that? Well, we'll get there when we get there. For now, we all know that the children are meant to be the victims of cannibalism. Oh no. And the cannibalism foreshadowed in this detail is super important to the story. Why, 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 why? Well, it's not just because the woman and the witch are essentially working in cahoots. And it's not just for the sake of the macabre, if not gratuitously violent image such a fate evokes. It's because there's another, similar scapegoat who undergoes that exact same fate on a daily basis, in our own day and age. What? Let's not forget that when Christians say, Christ died for our sins, they're actually saying that he's their official scapegoat. And as far as the sacrament of the Eucharist is concerned, the New Testament tells us that cannibalism is the very means by which the faithful obtain his grace. No! All right. This is from John chapter 6, verses 53 to 56. 
Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. That's uh, not funny. Of course, in that same chapter, he tried his best to include all the vegans in his audience, uh, if not all the gluten intolerant, when he said, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. I'm not saying nothing. Now, if we were so inclined, we could end our search for the real meaning of grace right here. And what I mean, of course, is the grace that our fairy tale bread was meant to symbolize. The bread that went missing from the whole soccer table, as well as all of Germany, was obviously the sacramental soul food and divine grace we've already understood it to be. Most assuredly. As I've said, though, Christians or not, there's no way we're going to accept grace as some religious abstraction or scriptural platitude. Why the fuck not? Not here. No matter how sacred, solemn, or saintly it sounds. And believe me, neither would or did our fairy tale author. Hey, you and I are going to deconstruct the original recipe for soul food and figure out exactly what the damn thing, or I mean, the blessed thing, is. Okie dokie. And let's not forget the obvious that there has to be some metaphoric connection between our little brother and sister and divine sacramental grace. How? Well, just remember, they're the ones who bring home the bacon at the end of the story. Now, that's a long way off, though. In the meantime, remember, we're also committed to finding out the truth about the little brother and sister as psychological metaphor. Specifically, which are the four functions of consciousness they represent? Thinking, feeling, sensation, or intuition? Just like I said in episode 10. Remember? No. Well, if you trust me, we're going to see that the two specific functions of consciousness they represent are not only serious sacraments in themselves, they're necessary ingredients in our very own recipe for soul food. Do we have any Cheetos? Part 2 Teil 2 In which we board the time machine and get ourselves invited to the world's first toga party. Toga! 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 Alright, this business of scapegoating the children, 
which amounts to a sacrifice to the unconscious? It's reminiscent of Abraham's cavalier treatment of his two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, the brothers from another mother. And once again, it also references the medieval practice of oblation, or abandoning, or I mean donating, unwanted children to the church. Uh, thank you? Uh, uh, thanks. Given all these connotations, agreeing to abandon the old sacred children, it's like a burnt offering in the name of obedience. And not obedience to the still small voice, but obedience to the voice of authority and dogma, to the voice of conscience. And yet stripped of all metaphoric symbolism, the idea of the children being torn apart by wild animals, me. Sounds like a simple statement of logical fact, right? Naturally. Something any normal parent would be expected to think and say. Certainly. So, if you're offended by all the cheeky references to Judeo-Christian writings, beliefs, and practices... Affirmative. You might not mind so much that this is also a startlingly clear allusion to something much less offensive to our postmodern sensibilities. What's that? Ancient Greek religion. Oh, really? That's right. And specifically, an ancient Dionysian ritual memorialized in an award-winning presentation of Greek tragedy. So uh, let's get on the time machine and travel back to 405 B.C. Keep all limbs and extremities within the confines of the vehicle. Enjoy your journey. Before the show begins, we just need to know a few basic facts about Dionysius that everyone else in this ancient theater knew. First of all, his mother was an ordinary mortal woman, and her name was Semele. Now once upon a time, Semele caught the eye of Zeus, who made her uh, one of his baby mamas. What seems to be the problem? Well, when Zeus's famously jealous wife, Hera, caught wind of this, she played it cool with Semele and tried to convince her that her new boyfriend had pulled a fast one and was only impersonating Zeus. Hera was so convincing, Semele began to doubt the divinity of both her boyfriend and their love child, Dionysius. So how about Frau Holzacker? In making her husband doubt the still small voice of his heart, well, she acted in a way that's kind of similar to Hera, don't you think? No, sir. All right. And, uh, oh yeah, didn't we already mention that Hansel and Gretel might actually have something in common with sacramental grace and divinity? No. Oh boy. 
Well, I guess it's time for the dinner part of our dinner theater. And as I said, we're having steak tartare. Because the celebration of Dionysian ritual called for... Pizza. Uh, no. It called for... Homophagia. Namely, eating raw meat. Ooh. And we're having blood sausage, too. Because the ritual also included the practice of sparagmos. And sparagmos must have been a pretty messy affair because it meant tearing apart a live sacrificial animal. Oh boy. It's sometimes even called for a human sacrifice. Oh no, that's not good. So you see, all of that mythology is what the Grimm's edition is referring to. Now, if that were all there was to say about this connection between scapegoating and Dionysius, we might as well just move on to the next step of the fairy tale. Oh, I think that we should do that. But uh, that would leave us hanging, because illusions like this, well, they're little more than a tease. Even if, as I said, the mother of the children is behaving more like Hera than we might have otherwise realized. Well... In this case, it's really meant to be a tease, because, fortunately, it's just the trailer for this play. And the play itself is one humdinger of a messy Greek tragedy. It's called the Bacchae, or Bacantes, and it was written by Euripides around 2,400 years ago. Pardon my lack of excitement. I've seen it before. Okay, so some of you are already familiar with the play. And that means you'd have already recognized a few illusions that are much more substance than tease. Now for the rest of you who aren't familiar with the play, don't worry, neither was I. Uh, excuse you. How long is this gonna take?! Well, here we go. Things are about to get really interesting really quick. In fact, we're going to fast forward through the whole thing and see all the juicy bits in four short acts. This is going to suck. No, it's not. I'll make this short and sweet. Act 1. Scene 1. Dionysius is the son of Zeus and a mortal woman. Semele. Scene 2. Semele goes around insisting that her boyfriend is a god. Of course, nobody believes her preposterous story about how and by whom she got knocked up. And that's why nobody believes that her son, Dionysius, is a god. Scene 3 Dionysius has a first cousin on his mother's side. His name is Pentheus, and he's the ruler of Thebes, the hometown of Dionysius. Now, like everybody else in town, Pentheus figures that his aunt Semele had a one-night stand with some run-of-the-mill pickup artist. 
And since that would make his cousin just another dumb bastard, he lays down the law and forbids anyone to party with Dionysius or treat him like a god. Act 2. Scene 4. Dionysius is really miffed by this public insult. And so, just to piss off his cousin, he throws the original toga party, otherwise known as a bacchanalia. The guests included pretty much all the women of Thebes, as well as all of his groupies, otherwise known as the Minads or Bacante. Now, one of those Bacante just happens to be his aunt Agave, the mother of Pentheus. Scene 5. Pentheus hears about the toga party, and he blows a gasket. So he doesn't put Dionysius on double secret probation. He throws him right into a cage. Scene 6. The cage magically opens. Act 3. Scene 7. Dionysius puts his arm around his cousin and says, Hey, we're gonna have an orgy. Lighten up. Come along and watch, why don't you? <laughs> Scene 8. Dionysius gets Pentheus a nice fancy toga and brings him to the party. Then he gets Pentheus high up in a tree so he can hide and get a bird's eye view of all the action. Act 4. Scene 9. Dionysius pulls a fast one and points Pentheus out to his groupies, the Bacante. They, of course, have all been partaking of the refreshments and are, shall we say, uh, more than just a touch, um, uninhibited. In fact, they're so far out there, they imagine Pentheus to be a wild animal. And so they promptly act out their favorite ritual, sparagmos. You know, they tear him to pieces. Scene 10. Aunt Agave gets the big prize. She rips the head off this wild animal. And she happily carries it home as a trophy. Of course, uh, she thinks she's carrying the head of a cougar. But, uh, she's not. Scene 11. Aunt Agave gets home, and her father, Cadmus, uh, sees the head and has a shit fit. Agave eventually uh, sobers up and sees the problem. Oops. So, obviously, there are a bunch of things in the play that show up in our fairy tale. What are they? In Act 2, Scene 5, Pentheus put Dionysius into a cage. Now, we haven't arrived there yet in our story, but it sure corresponds to what you and I already know. The witch is going to throw Hansel into a cage. 
Now, does this make Pentheus as a jealous and ridiculously mistaken authority a metaphoric model for the witch? I don't know, mate. Yeah, you bet it does. It also connects Hansel with Dionysius. Roger that. In Act 3, Scene 8, we've got Pentheus getting high up into a tree. Yeah, so what? Now, while this seems to have nothing to do with Hansel and Gretel, it's actually a small detail that makes its way into each of the three major tales that Hansel and Gretel is based on. Tales that we spoke about in Episode 10. Remember? No. Now, I think our author chose to leave this detail out of Hansel and Gretel because, in fact, it wouldn't be consistent with the underlying metaphors of the story. How it functions in the other stories, it would require an in-depth analysis of each of them. Please don't do that. Yeah, well, actually, I'd love to do that. But it's something we just don't have time for. That said... There's no mistaking this allusion to Euripides in each of those tales, no matter how coincidental it may seem. And just so you know, in the Alsatian story by Martin Montanus, the relevant line reads like this. As now evening came, and the poor lost girl despaired of having any and all help she climbed up a very tall tree in order to look around and see if there might be some village or house she could go to in order not to be miserably eaten by wild animals. Lo and behold, we not only find this tree business, we also find the very source of the Grimm's extra piece of the story, the wild animal part, right there in the same line. Uh, <laughs> Interesting. Now this leaves us with the most important connection between Euripides and our fairy tale. And it showed up right away in Act 1. How? Dionysius is, in fact, a god. But not only do most people of Thebes not believe this, Pentheus has laid down the law and ordered that everyone who does believe it to not believe it. In other words they've got to deny their own belief. And not just belief, something they know to be true. This law actually amounts to a religious dogma. And that makes it part and parcel of a rigid conscience. The fact that it's a mistaken conscience makes it the metaphoric equivalent of Frau Holzacker nagging her husband. We, as the audience, are privy to the fact that Dionysius is a god. Everyone else is left to discover this for themselves. In the case of Pentheus and his mother, Agave, this means finding out the hard way. And uh, I don't know about you, but the hard way sure seems to be how we're usually left to figure out some of the most important things in our own life. Oh, shit! As for the Maenads, or Bacante, whether or not they believe Dionysius is a god, it's not even the point. They worship him because it feels great. 
and their worship is rewarded with the special grace of ecstasy and enthusiasm. Damn this good shit! Fuck! Now, in Greek theater, to play the god was to be the god, and to pretend to eat the god was to become the god. Now, I don't know if the same was true for the Greek audiences, but I'll bet that it was. For them to witness these activities, even in a theater piece, was to participate in them. Yowza! Woo! So what about Hansel and his sister? What do we become when we read their story? (laughs) I don't don't know. (laughs) Well, if the Greek model holds true, which uh, I suspect it does, we become them. In anthropology, this intense sense of identification is called participation mystique. Ooh la la. And while that's considered something common to an uncivilized or more primal consciousness and culture, in Jungian circles, it's considered an everyday occurrence. Something that routinely happens to all of us. Nonsense. Think about it. If the idea of a modern, rational adult falling victim to such primitive, unconscious behavior offends anyone as being irrational, illogical, and unsophisticated, never forget that the true power of commercial advertising is based on pulling us into and then abruptly cutting us off from this very phenomenon. Oh no, you can't be serious. That is some bullshit right there. Well, stretching your patience for all things Jungian just one iota longer. What part of ourselves do we project onto Hansel and Gretel when we read their story? So how should I know? Who even cares? Seriously. What part of ourselves has been banished to the wilderness of the unconscious by the dictates of our culture? I don't think you know. This entire podcast, and the book that'll eventually emerge from it, is an effort to find that out. Uh, Let's forget about Jung, though, and get back to real life. Thank you. Remember from our poetry slam in the last episode that Thoreau... And speaking of life, he wrote, For most men, it appears to me, are in a strange uncertainty about it, whether it is of the devil or of God. Now, in Western culture and consciousness, Dionysius the God is one of the chief models for the Christian devil. That's correct. Yep. And in Western European history, devil worship often took the form of a real toga party, a bacchanalia. Ooh, I like that. In fact, a bacchanalia is precisely what witches were accused of having in all the historical descriptions of a witch's Sabbath. That's correct. And now, to make this entire matter completely and utterly heretical, remember, too, that Christ himself has also been metaphorically connected to Dionysius. What? Apparently, it was Hölderlin. Your German pronunciation must be much better. Do it again. Hölderlin. The romantic poet and Hellenophile, 
was the first to recognize this strong conceptual connection between Dionysus and Christ, both of them being immortal gods who did the impossible by dying and being resurrected, and both allowing their worshipers to partake of their grace by virtue of cannibalistic ingestion. Oh, and I suppose you think that's funny, huh? Notice, too, that Hüdelin... Yeah, yeah, it's okay. ...was 42 years old when Hansel and Gretel was first published. He was also, along with Goethe, intimately acquainted with our play, the Bache, because he was the first poet to translate it into German. Holy shit! <laughs> so, in our search for the original author of Hansel and Gretel, Hüdelin... Be serious now. Concentrate. Men before you have finally gotten quite acceptable pronunciation. Hüdelin, by virtue of his maturity, education, and literary insight, becomes one in a very long list of suspected authorial candidates. That said, the Christ analogy is not necessarily what I'm getting at here. What I find much more significant in the Bache is that Dionysius becomes an excellent metaphor for the still small voice within. No way. Why not? We've got the authority of a dogmatic, conservative conscience, as portrayed by both Pentheus and Frau Holzacker, that strictly forbids us to worship anything as wild and untamed as Dionysius. Which leads me to speculate, what if the true nature of the still small voice is not meekness, but Dionysian exuberance? And what if that exuberance in us all is not something evil, but instead godlike, not to mention Christ-like? Could it be that worshiping or simply paying attention to the still small voice is what gives us both enthusiasm, which literally means to be filled with the God, and, dare I say, the euphoric ecstasy of some something else that only the still small voice can provide. Once again, here we are knocking on the door of a something else. Open the door. And by something else, I mean grace. Open the door. So I guess it's about time we open that door. Open the door. Part 3. Teil 3. In which we discover a family that's even more dysfunctional than the Holzhackers. Find a terrific alternative to Facebook and the metaverse. And then hear about a bonus episode we can't refuse. Open the door. It's locked. I must get in. I must. Closed for the night. Everybody's gone home. I must get in. Before we open the door on Grace, we got a little encore to our dinner theater. It's another Easter egg of a literary reference to this wild animal business, 
and it turns up in a very famous collection of Latin poems known as the Heroides. They were written by another friend and fan of the podcast, and one hell of a famous dead poet, Publius Ovidius Naso. Oh boy. Otherwise known as Avid. Yeah, very nice. He wrote these poems a little over 2,000 years ago, which is to say about 400 years after the play by Euripides. And they were pretty revolutionary in their time, because they came in the innovative form of impassioned letters written by famous Greek heroines that are boyfriends. Take care of yourself. The poem in question is number 11, and in it, the Greek heroine Canase is writing to her brother Macarius, who uh, just happens to be the father of her newborn baby. Ugh, you. In the poem, the shit has already hit the fan, because Canase's father, Aeolus, who was uh, apparently clueless for nine months, has uh, finally smelled the coffee. And he's so pissed off, he grabs the baby and orders that it be taken out and abandoned in the woods. Wow. Asshole. So we've got Kanase writing one last tear-stained letter to her brother. Because not only has her father gotten rid of his grandkid, he just sent Kanase a sword. And he wants her to commit seppuku with it. Son of a bitch! Now, of course, in the letter, Kanase mentions this wild animal business more than once. So, for our purposes, whether or not the line about wild animals was a reminder furnished by the Grimms themselves or was an original thought of our author, I'm just grateful for it. This business of intuitive metaphoric interpretation, it's such that no one person can have all the answers, recognize all the relevant allusions, or see things from all sides. Not only is an open and well-read mind required, but alternative suggestions are always worth considering and can, just like this one, provide valuable and unexpected insight into the full meaning and potential of the story. So that's the story, Jerry! Now there's more to this than meets the eye, and I'll have more to say about it in the future. For now, though, just realize that this extra line the Grimm's added, it amounts to a very particular literary or rhetorical trope known as... Spaghetti. Uh, no. It's known as a metalepsis. What the fuck does that mean? I don't want to get too deep into this right now, except to say that this entire fairy tale is filled with them. Each instance of metalepsis in any art form is a bridge or a signpost in one work pointing to an earlier instance of the same or similar symbol appearing in another work or context. One important thing about metalepsis is that the earlier symbol carries some of the weight of meaning meant to be expressed in the later work. 
In other words, some of the force of Herr Holzhacker's worry about wild animals tearing his kids to pieces, it's brought forward from the despair expressed by Ovid's Canase, and from the wild and crazy violence demonstrated in Euripides. Ah, very good. So you see, metalepsis is deliberate. Now, what's also important about metalepsis is that it's a kind of cheeky nod and compliment to the earlier works and their authors, which is something you see in Hollywood movies all the time. Modern directors, screenwriters, even actors, will often copy some aspect of a famous scene as a way of paying homage to films, directors, and actors they admire. A literary metalepsis is actually brilliant as a kind of Easter egg hunt meant for well-read conoscenti, or at least anyone willing to take the time to suss out its source, which, in our zeitgeist, most often means using the internet for something way more interesting than, uh, well, use your imagination to finish that sentence. Now, before we close, I gotta mention one last thing about this extra bit that was added by the Grimms because it, too, contains another example of metalepsis. I have to confess that in all the, now, 11 years of research I'd already done on this fairy tale, I was completely at a loss concerning that business of planing the planks of their coffins. "'Oh, you fool!' said she. "'Then we must all four die of hunger.' You may as well plane the planks for our coffins. What the hell? Even knowing in my heart that this had to be a literary reference to something specific, it was such a mystery to me, I was more than willing to ignore it for the sake of moving along and finishing this episode of the podcast. Part of my reasoning was that, unlike the business of the wild animals, it doesn't appear in any version of the story until 1843, which is effectively the Grimm's fifth edition. So to my mind, that meant it was pretty clearly not original to the story our author wrote. And I thought, well, that should be enough to let me off the hook. Except, just because I couldn't recognize any specific literary or historical allusion in it, I realized... It was only my logical mind that was ready to throw in the towel. My intuition knew better. And with a hell of a lot more empathy than Frau Holzhacker, it kept bugging me to do something about it until I finally said, Well, all right. Anything you want. Anything. So while I was preparing to wrap up this episode of the podcast, a funny thing happened. Funny how? Like I'm, like I'm clowning here? I'm to amuse you or what? My intuition solved the riddle of the clue this line of the fairy tale represents. No way! And while I was going to include that information in this episode, I've decided to give it an episode all to itself. Except, it's not going to be part of the series. It's going to be a bonus episode. It'll be available as soon as I produce it, although I plan on making it available only as a bonus for supporters. Which, uh, of course, might mean that nobody's ever going to hear it. Got that right. 
Eh, well, we'll see about that. Anyway, whether it interests you or not, you can expect to read more about it on the website and hear more about it in coming episodes. Speaking of which... In our next episode, we finally take the wrapping off our Hansel and Gretel bread and discover what soul food really is. Which is to say, we're going to make one hell of a bold statement and declare exactly what grace is. Not just in our day and age, but for all time. And not just for our fairy tale family, but for you and me and all of humanity. Is that so? I don't know. It may or may not surprise you. But I know you won't want to miss out on hearing what Hansel and Gretel have to say about it. So, I still don't know how many of you guys are out there listening to the podcast. What part of silence don't you understand? And I know you're probably all tired of hearing me whining and asking you to please, please, please keep spreading the word. Yes, sir. Yeah, well, uh... So there. Hey, just don't forget, you can find full transcripts, including all the voice and music credits for each episode, on the website. Visit us on the web at www.betweenthelines.xyz. You'll also find extra links within the transcripts, giving you more information related to the European history mentioned in each episode as well as all of the dead poets and playwrights in this episode. Whatever. Alrighty then. Ciao a tutti quanti. This recording will self-destruct in five seconds. Ciao, ciao.